Amen. We'll invite you to turn your Bibles with us tonight to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. I want to talk to you about Jesus, the anointed one. Jesus is uh, uh, at a certain point in time in his ministry, gets to a place in uh, Caesarea Philippi. And uh, if you've ever been to Israel, this is one of the uh, the highlights of um, uh, the different places to look at. It's, uh, it's a very interesting place because it's a, um, uh, a place where there's a lot of different gods and statues and idols and different things like that um, um, gathered together in one place. And it was at the time of Jesus' uh, ministry on the earth. It was a place where people went together to, to worship all kinds of different things. And um, uh, so Jesus came to this location and asked them, when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Now, the significance of that is if people are gathered around, they're worshiping false gods and making sacrifices and offering different things to different people. And so Jesus then asked his disciples, his followers, he said, Who are people saying that I am? We know what these people think about all the other gods that they're here to worship. Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist. Well, he was beheaded already. So they must be thinking reincarnation. Some say that you're Elijah. Remember, Elijah was taken up into heaven by a whirlwind, saw the chariots of fire and um, uh, and so forth. And others say that you're Jeremiah. He was already dead, long since gone, or one of the other prophets. And he said unto them, Jesus said unto them, but who do you say that I am? Whom say you that I am? Well, we know everybody's got their own ideas. Now, Jesus says, what about you? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now notice what he did not say. He didn't say, you're Jesus, our buddy. He didn't just say, you're the Son of God. He didn't say, you're the miracle worker. We've seen you do lots of cool stuff. You're the one that tells us about God. Notice that his answer. Simon Peter answered for the group and said, Thou art the Christ. The name Christ means anointed one. It can sometimes be translated Messiah, but of the, of the 300 and some odd, 300 and, um, what is it, 380 something times that this word is used in the Greek New Testament, 350 of them are translated Christ, meaning anointed one. Thou art the Christ, the Christ. There's only one. Thou art the Christ, the anointed one, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, notice what he said. He said, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona. Good answer. But not because of you. He said, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed this unto you, but my father, which is in heaven. Now, I want you to notice what Peter has seen. This is about halfway through Jesus' ministry. And so for the last year and a half or so, Peter has watched Jesus do miracles. He's watched him feed the 5,000. He's watched him walk on water. He walked on water with him. He's seen him raise the dead. He's seen him heal the sick. He's seen him cleanse the lepers. He's seen him do all kinds of different works and healings and, and miracles and different things like that. But Jesus said that it wasn't anything you saw with your natural eye that caused you to realize that I'm the anointed one. That comes only by revelation of the Holy Ghost. You know what I think? And I'm speaking figuratively here. I, I, I don't want to split hairs about things. But I believe a lot of people hear the preaching of Jesus and dying on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And they believe in Jesus as the son of God. But it, it's many, many days, weeks, sometimes even years later before they really see Christ, the anointed one. 
And some people never do. They know him as Jesus. They know that he's the son of God. They know that he's the resurrected one, the one that sacrificed his life. But Jesus commended Peter because of what the Holy Ghost revealed to him about being the anointed one. And what does that mean? Can I ask you a question? How can God be anointed? See, a lot of times in the church world, people have the idea that Jesus healed the sick and he did signs and wonders because he was the son of God. Well, that would make him Jesus. Jesus was the son of God. Why do they call him Christ? Why do they call him the anointed one? How can God be anointed? If Jesus is here on the earth doing works because he's the son of God, if his power to do miracles and healings and such comes from him being the son of God, then how could he possibly be anointed? Who's going to anoint God? But if the Bible is accurate and true, where it tells us that Jesus laid aside his heavenly power and glory and came to the earth as a man, and notice what Jesus called himself, he said, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? He didn't say, hey, guys, I'm the son of God. What are people saying? He said, what do people say about me, the son of man? If Jesus did healings and works and miracle works and different things like that because he was the son of God, then there would be no need nor no possibility for him to be anointed. Because once you're God, that's pretty much the top of the food chain. Who's going to anoint God? Well, God, the father would anoint God, the son. Well, the Bible says they're co-equal and co-eternal. The only thing that makes God, the father, greater than, than God, the son, Jesus is because Jesus lays down his crown and glory and offers it unto the Father. It's by choice, not by rank. But as I said, if Jesus laid aside his heavenly power and glory and was here on the earth as a man, able only to do what men can do, then his healing and miracle working power had to come from somewhere else. Turn back with me to Luke chapter 3. Let's see how Jesus became the anointed one. Luke chapter 3 Tells us about the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Let's start reading in verse uh, 21. This is talking about John the Baptist. And it says, now when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized and praying, the heaven was opened and the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove. Notice it does not say the Holy Ghost is a bird. It says something came from heaven like a bird comes down and landed on him. That's all it says. That's all it means. Something came down in bodily shape. In other words, physical form. People saw a physical form come down from heaven and land on Jesus and stay there. And the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved son, in thee I am well pleased. Folks, here's a a place where you've got all three of the Godhead in operation. God the Father is speaking the words Thou art my beloved son in in whom I'm well pleased. You've got the Holy Ghost descending in bodily shape upon Jesus. And you've got Jesus, the son of God, who this is happening to. All three of them in operation and manifestation. The Trinity is not one God with three names. The three distinct personalities. With separate works and characteristics. Now it says, skip with me over to chapter 4. The rest of chapter 3 is about Jesus' lineage. 
Chapter 4, it says, And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being forty days tempted of the devil, and in those days he did eat nothing. And when they, they were ended, he afterward hungered. And it talks about the devil coming and tempting him, the three different temptations of Jesus. Jesus answered each time by saying, It is written, and he quotes the word, which should be a good pattern for us when we're tempted how to handle temptation. I don't know why that's so hard for most Christians to get. When temptation comes, we're supposed to follow Jesus' example, who was tempted in all points like as we are. He answered every time by saying, here's what the word says. In other words, there's power when you confess the word in the face of temptation. Most Christians seem to think that if they just give in, then the temptation will end. Well, yeah, but then you have to ask forgiveness for yielding to sin. So Jesus answers with the word. He shows us the example of how to handle the devil when he comes around. And notice it says, verse 13, And when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. That means just for a period of time. Verse 14, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. And there went out a fame of him through all the region round about. What caused Jesus to come back in the power of the Spirit? Well, we see in chapter 3 that he was anointed of the Holy Ghost or anointed of God. The Holy Ghost came upon him in bodily shape. God speaks and says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then he goes into the wilderness. He deals with temptation. Let me make this statement. Jesus wasn't in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted. That's not the reason he went into the wilderness is to be tempted. He went into the wilderness to get along with God because of the work that he had for him to do. Because of the work of the Father upon Jesus. He got alone with God to get direction and to establish himself in what God had planned for his life. The temptation came at the end of the 40 days that he spent with God. Everybody understand that? God doesn't lead you into places where you're going to be tempted for day after day after day after day after day. That's not the way it works. God led him into the wilderness where he was spent alone, spent time alone with God. The reason Jesus departed from the, from the crowd was so he could be alone with God. After those 40 days of being alone with God, that's when the devil came. And folks, that's always going to be the way that it works. Anytime you try to take a step toward God, anytime you try to take, make some consecration, new consecration, uh, new commitment toward God in some way or another. The devil is always going to be at the end of that, on the tail end of that, to try to talk you out of what you've committed to. I've had people say, Pastor Mike, I never had so much trouble with the devil until I started trying to live by faith. Well, duh. That's how it works. Anytime you commit yourself to do what the Bible says, the devil's going to try to distract you and talk you out of it, try to turn up the heat so that you back away. That's what's happening here with Jesus. The devil deals with Jesus exactly the same way he deals with you. No difference. Jesus wasn't the son of God, and so he got a pass from temptation. The devil dealt with him exactly the same. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. I'm sure that dealing with the temptation successfully uh, was a, a boost or a help or an aid to what he already had and had uh, established with God for the 40 days. But the reason Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit was because he's now anointed with the Holy Ghost and he separated himself to God. That's what always brings greater power in your life. The power of the anointing of the Holy Ghost and separating yourself unto God. Now, you know that uh, uh, we probably should make this statement, and that is Jesus was not required to go into the wilderness. It says he was led of the Spirit into the wilderness, but he didn't have to go. 
He didn't have to yield to the Holy Ghost any more than you yield to the Holy Ghost all the time. He could have passed that up. And that would have changed everything. Just like when we fail to yield to the Holy Ghost and whatever he's leading us to do, it has great implications in our lives. That's why we need to be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Ghost, even if it looks like he's taken to somewhere we might not want to go. A lot of times God will lead you into things that don't look to be pleasant places, just like he did with Jesus because of the outcome, because of the results on the other side. So he returned in the power of the Spirit unto Galilee, and there went out a fame of him throughout all the region round about, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. Now put something here in your Bible. We're going to come back to chapter 4, but I want you to see what the power of the Spirit meant. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. Let's look at, uh, uh, turn with me over to Matthew chapter 9. Let's look at a verse of Scripture there. Matthew chapter 9. Now this, chronologically, this would be later in Jesus' ministry, but we wouldn't expect Jesus to have more in his ministry later on than he had early on. We don't see any place where uh, the power of God increases on Jesus once he's baptized uh, by John in the Jordan River. So let me show you some things here in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. It says, And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. I'm reading from the King James. Notice it says he healed every sickness among the, every sickness and every disease among the people. Most other translations, and, and check this out if you want to. I'll prove it to you in just a moment, even without other translations. But most other translations say every manner of sickness and every manner of disease. In other words, it's not saying he healed everything that was sick or every one that was sick. It says he healed every type of sickness and disease. I'll show you why in just a little bit. But notice he said, and he healed every manner of sickness and every manner of disease among the people. So Jesus who returned in the power of the Spirit, that power of the Spirit was power or authority over every manner of sickness and disease. In other words, there was not one sickness that came to Jesus that was too tough for him to handle. Do you see that? Now, let me prove it to you. Skip down to chapter 10 and verse 1. That has to be what it means because Jesus called unto him his 12 disciples and gave them power. Literally, that word power is the word authority. He gave them authority over or or against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. If Jesus didn't have power to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease, he certainly couldn't delegate it to the disciples. Right? So Matthew 9.35, and he went about their cities and villages teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Teaching, preaching, and healing. The power of the Spirit was upon Jesus. The anointing of the Holy Ghost was upon Jesus. Or Jesus was the anointed one to preach, to preach, teach, and heal. To preach, teach, and heal. Now let's read down in these verses between, um, well, start in verse 36. But when he saw the multitudes, now he's preaching, he's teaching, he's healing. Every manner of sickness and every manner of disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion upon them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then said he unto his disciples, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Now chapter 10 and verse 1 is the very thing Jesus just said God wants us to pray for. He said the harvest is great, the laborers are few. 
pray for more laborers. He didn't say pray for more power. He said pray for more people to go do the works of preaching, teaching, and healing. And then he sent forth 12 to do the work. He multiplied himself in chapter 10 and verse 1. Now, I'd like to bring something out to you that you probably don't think of when you first see this. They tell us that there's more people alive today than there were in Jesus' day or in any other time. The population is expanding here on the earth, right? So that means that whatever this multitude that Jesus saw, when he saw the multitudes, his compassion upon them came upon them because they fainted as sheep without a shepherd. In other words, they had no direction. They didn't know what was available to him. They didn't know what God would do for them. When Jesus saw the multitude in one of the smallest country countries on the face of the earth, then and now, he saw a group of people that would be much less than what we would know of as the population of the world today. And that small multitude, in comparison, I don't know how big it was, I'm sure it's still a big crowd, but in comparison, that smaller multitude activated the willingness of God, which never changes, God's will never changed. If God wanted it then, he wants it today because God never changes. Him seeing the small multitudes in need activated the will of God to send forth more people to teach, to preach, and to heal. If that happened in the smaller multitudes in Jesus' day, what do you think God wants for today with the greater multitudes? He wants more people to preach, teach, and heal just like Jesus did. So the power of the Spirit that Jesus returned in, Luke chapter 4, verse 14, and he returned in the power of the Spirit. That means power over all manner of sickness and all manner of disease, right? Turn back with me to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, let's see how Jesus describes this anointing that's on him. Verse 16, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Jesus' custom was to go to church. That should be a revelation to a lot of present-day Christians. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Isn't this an interesting text for Jesus to take right after he's been anointed of the Holy Ghost? by being baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. Returning in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. Obviously, he's doing healing works and miracles because that's what causes the fame to go out of him in that region. And then he comes to Nazareth, his hometown. And if you want to do good anywhere, you want to do good in your own hometown, right? He comes to his own hometown and he takes the text that says, I'm anointed by the Holy Ghost. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me. Because he's anointed me. He has sent me. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't finish that. Because he's anointed me to do what? To preach the gospel to the poor. Now, the poor just simply means it doesn't mean people that don't have money. It's not talking about that kind of poor. It's talking about people that are, uh, are, that are oppressed by sin and death. People that are burdened and in bondage in any form because of the sin that came into the world and the spiritual death that overtook the world because of Adam and Eve's transgression in the Garden of Eden. That's what it's talking about, the poor. It's talking about spiritually poor. In other, in other words, those that lost their first place with God. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Those that are in bondage to the law of sin and death, in other words. 
Notice the next, he says, he has sent me. The Spirit of the Lord has sent me. Here's what the Holy Ghost sent him to do. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Now, we think of brokenhearted as being emotional stuff. Well, I used to like this person and they cheated on me and now I'm brokenhearted. It's not talking about emotional stuff. It wouldn't necessarily exclude that. God provides comfort in every situation. But brokenhearted means a breach in spirit. Heart's talking about the spirit. In other words, it's talking about the spiritual break that took place when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. Before that point in time, Adam and Eve were righteous before God because they were created in the image of God. He breathed his own life into them. That's the spirit of God that was the substance or the origin of their lives, their physical lives. And they maintained that until they disobeyed God and fell into sin. At that point, there was a break or a breach in spirit. That's why Jesus had to come to redeem us from sin and death. So when he's talking about the brokenhearted, we already see that he healed every manner of sickness and every manner of disease. So where it says he came to heal or was sent to heal the brokenhearted, it literally means those that were crushed by the effects of sin and death. That would certainly be true where sickness is concerned, wouldn't it? He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. He also sent him to preach deliverance to the captives. How do people that are captive get free? By hearing the preaching of deliverance. What does that mean? That means Jesus was anointed to set people free. People that were captive of the enemy. To preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. How do the blind recover their sight? By hearing the preaching of the word. The preaching that the anointed one has come to set mankind free. And notice these are things Jesus said the Holy Ghost sent him to do. Here's Jesus' job description laid out for us. John Lake used to call this the platform of Jesus' ministry. You know how political parties have their conventions? They have platforms where they lie to us about what they're going to do? Jesus didn't lie. This was the platform of Jesus' ministry. He has sent me... To preach deliverance to the captive and to preach recovering of sight to the blind. He sent me to set at liberty them that are bruised. Now, what does he mean being bruised? Again, he's not talking about people's feelings being hurt. He's talking about people that were bruised by the law of sin and death, by the entrance of sin and spiritual death. You know, the Bible says in Hebrews that uh, Jesus is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He has compassion for us because he is touched, easily touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Every one of these things shows God's care and concern for people that are crushed under the weight of sin and death. Whether it's physical, whether it's financial, whether it's in uh, being people being tormented in their minds and in their souls. Every one of these things where people are bound in any form whatsoever, this is the compassion of the Lord to set mankind free. I don't think we really understand. I know I don't. I'm, I'm, I don't think anybody else does either, but at least I'm honest about it. I don't think we understand where it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. I don't think we've even scratched the surface of God loving the world. I get big, a bigger glimpse of it in, in things like this, scriptures like this, than just here in John 3.16. I've heard that all my life. And, and honestly, you know, it's kind of like, well, I'm glad he did, but the love part doesn't jump out at me. But I read these things and see the compassion that Jesus had for people 
that are crushed under the weight of sin, especially sickness. He has sent me to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. He sent me to set at liberty them that are bruised. He sent me to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. Can't you imagine this, folks? I would love to have been a fly on the wall and seeing some of these things happen. Maybe when we get to heaven, we'll get a replay. He sat down and everybody's looking at him. And what does Jesus say? Jesus said, this day, this scripture is fulfilled in your ears. In other words, he's saying, folks, this is talking about me. Jesus is identifying himself as the anointed one. As the anointed one. Well, what's he anointed to do? Well, he's anointed to heal every manner of sickness and every manner of disease. He's anointed to preach the gospel and to teach in the synagogues, teach concerning the things about the kingdom of God. Now turn with me over to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. There was only one thing that was required of man to receive of the anointing. And it's interesting because Mark chapter 6 is the same experience as Mark's account, but it's the same experience that we just read about in Luke chapter 4 when he was in his own hometown of Nazareth. Same exact story. You read the, 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 the whole thing. We're just going to pick per- certain parts out for the sake of time. But you take the time to read the, the two accounts, both Mark chapter 6 and Luke chapter 4. Read the whole chapters. You'll find out. See from the similarities, it's talking about exactly the same time, exactly the same experience. Mark chapter 6. We'll start in verse 1, give you a little bit of a taste of it. And he went out from thence and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence has this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and of Judah and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended in him. Now, as I understand it, the Roman Catholic Church says that Jesus was the only son that Mary had. The Bible disagrees. Which brings up an important point, and that is when it comes to Mary... When God gives you a specific work to do, it brings blessing into your life, not curses. It doesn't rob you. It didn't rob her of the blessing of having other children. It didn't mark her in some way so that she couldn't live a normal life. No, in fact, she had other brothers and sisters, half brothers and sisters to Jesus. These others were the children of Joseph and Mary, where Jesus just had Mary as his mother and God as his father. And so they were offended in him. They said, we, this can't be, he can't be who he says he is because we know his past. We know his background. We know where he came from. And so they were offended at him. But Jesus said unto them, a prophet is not without honor, but is in his own country. That's the same thing Luke chapter 4 brings out. He's not without honor, but in his own country, in his own house, and among his own kin. Now notice verse 5. Of Mark chapter 6. After Jesus has just preached to them in the synagogue from Isaiah 61. It's Isaiah 61.1 in our, our Bible. But from the scrolls of Isaiah, the writings of Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Those that are crushed by sin and death. 
Those are some of the mighty works that he's done before. That's what he says in Luke chapter 4. I know what you're going to say. You're going to say, what about the works you've done in other places? Do those here. They wanted to see the show. So he must have done other works. Those were the works that the fame went out of that region of him throughout all that region. Luke chapter 4 verse 14. People have heard of his miracle works that he's already done. Healing every manner of sickness and every manner of disease. And so Jesus said, I know how it works. A prophet is not without honor. I could go anywhere else and they would honor me for the things that I've done except here. Because you think you know me. You knew me growing up. And so you think you know everything that God had planned for me. Verse 5. And he could there. Everybody say could. Notice it does not say would. It said, and he could there do no mighty work. Now, what's a mighty work? It's a sign or a wonder or a miracle. And he could there in his own hometown of Nazareth, and he could there in Nazareth do no mighty work, save or accept that he laid his hands upon upon a few sick folks and healed them. Now, if you look up the word sick, you'll find out that it means people with minor ailments. It literally is the word sickly. He didn't get any blind eyes opened. He didn't get any uh, lepers cleansed in Nazareth. He didn't have anybody that was crippled or lame walk. He couldn't do any mighty work. He did get a few folks with minor ailments healed by laying his hands on them. Now, why, if Jesus is empowered by the Holy Ghost, if Luke chapter 4, verse 14, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit unto Galilee, and we've already seen that the power of the Spirit means he healed every manner of sickness and every manner of disease among the people. In other words, Jesus is the anointed one. We have proof that he's the anointed one because of the works that he's doing. He refers to the works that he did. We don't know what they were, but we have to assume that they were healing works because he said, I know what you're going to say. This is part of Luke chapter 4. Physician, heal yourself. The same works you've done in other places do here too. Prove it to us. We want to see the show. And he could there in Nazareth do no mighty works. Please again, notice it doesn't say he wouldn't. It says he couldn't. Now, I don't know about you, but couldn't means unable to me. It doesn't mean that he was unwilling. It means he was unable. Now, how could the anointed one be unable to do the works that God sent him to do? That's really the point I want you to see. That's the question I want you to see and ask within yourself. Because once you get the answer, it'll open up everything else for the things of God to work for you. And he could there do no mighty work. Son of God, anointed by the Holy Ghost, unlimited power to heal every manner of sickness and every manner of disease. But he could there do no mighty work. There's got to be something that's greater than the power of God if he couldn't do it in his own hometown. What is that something that stops the power from working? Notice verse 6. And he marveled because of their unbelief. He marveled because of their unbelief. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Folks, there's only one thing that can stop God from showing compassion to heal the brokenhearted, to preaching deliverance, to delivering the captives, Causing the blind to have their sight recovered. To set at liberty people that are bruised. And to show that this is the acceptable year of the Lord. God will do anything for you that you need. The acceptable year of the Lord to the Jews was the year of Jubilee. Came around once every 50 years. 
Jesus said, with me, I am the year of Jubilee. It's not a time period anymore. It's wrapped up in me. What's the only thing that would stop that? Their unbelief. Now, folks, I, I hope you can make the, connect the dots here. Because it certainly stands to reason that if unbelief kept Jesus, the anointed one, the Christ, the one that was sent specifically to do these things and had unlimited power over every manner of sickness and disease, if unbelief kept him from being able to do the work God sent him to do, unbelief's going to hinder people today too then, won't it? But so much of the church sits back and say, well, I'm just waiting for God to do his thing. If God wants to heal me, then I believe he will. That's unbelief. It's unbelief by default. It may not be a purpose, purposeful rebellion against God or his word, but it's unbelief by default. Anything that does not actively choose to believe what God's word says is true about Jesus or anything else is a un- choice for unbelief by default. There no decision is a choice for unbelief. That's why those people never get healed. That's why church people sit back and they say, well, I just don't understand it. Sister so-and-so, dear saint of God, you know how she loved God. She had this sickness for 20 years and died of that sickness. I just don't understand why God let that happen. God didn't let it happen. Sister so-and-so did. Sister so-and-so was living in Nazareth for 20 years. You know what I mean by that? She chose to operate in exactly the same way as the people in Nazareth did. And he could there do no mighty work, save or except that he laid his hands upon a few sickly folks and healed them. Now, here's another interesting thing to me, and that is the Holy Ghost inspires Mark to write, I couldn't get much done except I got a few folks with not too much wrong with them healed. Which implies that the Holy Ghost, who's giving Mark these words to write, Mark wasn't there. He wasn't part of the disciples group. So the Holy Ghost that's giving Mark these words to write seems to have wanted much greater results in this town, just like he got them in every other town. So the problem wasn't with what God wanted or didn't want to happen. The problem was with what the people would allow to take place. That brings another thought. Look how easy it is to get things from God if you're just willing to accept them. See, people paint healing as some hard thing to get. How hard was it for, for you to get saved? I had one person, I, I asked that question, a rhetorical question one time, and somebody came up to me after the service and said, well, Pastor Mike, listen, it took me three days and nights to get saved. And I, <laughs> I laughed and I said to him, no, it took you one moment to get saved and you wasted three days and nights by not believing what the Bible says about getting saved. And he wanted to fight about it because he wanted to hang on to those three days and nights that it took him to get saved. He wanted to believe in his own works for three days and nights to get saved. And I showed him what the Bible says, and he left mad. I guess he's still saying that it took him three days and nights to get saved. Folks, it takes one moment of accepting God's gift to the world named Jesus to get saved. One moment. And then finally, that when we do come to that moment, it's a surrender more than anything else. It's like, well, okay, I'll just accept it. Bang, there it comes. The Bible says if God gave us Jesus, how will he not with him also freely give us all things? That would have to include healing, wouldn't it? 
Healing is the easiest thing in the world to get because Jesus already purchased it for you. He bought it for you already. With his stripes, that which has already been paid, you were healed. And he could there do no mighty work, save or accept that he laid his hands upon a few sick folks and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And I didn't leave them in that condition. And he went around about their villages teaching. Why did he go around about the villages teaching? Because Romans ten seventeen says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. He's teaching to get them to believe because he still wants God to get to them what he sent Jesus there to do. Now, we don't know if it ever worked. We don't know if they ever came from that place of unbelief to the place of faith because the Bible never tells us anything more about the city of Nazareth. Well, Pastor Mike, I sure hope I'm not in that same category. Well, I hope you're not too. Turn with me over to Mark chapter 9. Let's see. Mark chapter 9. Jesus just comes back from the Mount of Transfiguration with his three disciples, Peter, James, and John. The other nine are left behind at a certain place, and Jesus returns to them. Verse 14, and when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them and the scribes questioning with them. That's usually trouble. And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed, running to him, saluted him. And he asked the scribes, what question ye with them? Jesus runs to their defense. Don't ask them questions. Ask me. They didn't have too much success by doing that, so that's probably why they were working with the disciples. And one of the multitude answered, And said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which has a dumb spirit. I think they're all dumb, but this one specifically, I think, is being spoken of as keeping him from being able to speak. And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth and gnashes with his teeth and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. Now, did we not just read in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 1 that Jesus gave the twelve disciples authority or power against or over all unclean spirits to cast them out. So they've got power, according to Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. They had power, but they couldn't make it work. That sounds a lot like Nazareth in Mark chapter 6. Jesus had the power, but he couldn't make it work. Was it Jesus' fault that he couldn't make it work? No, it was the unbelief of the people. Now, Jesus knows how this works, and the disciples apparently don't. Because Jesus responds when he hears that the power that he delegated to the disciples to cast out evil spirits didn't work. Notice what Jesus says. Jesus answers him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. Now, please notice Jesus did not look at the disciples and say, you unbelieving bunch of guys. What is your problem? Why didn't you make this work? No, He answers him, meaning the father who's telling about his son. The father is the one that says, I brought him to your disciples and they couldn't do anything. Jesus answers the father and says, you're part of a faithless generation. In other words, you're a Nazareth kind of person. The problem is not a lack of faith on the part of the disciples. Although the experience where it didn't work for them did injure their faith. Jesus has to deal with that later on. The problem was a lack of faith on the part of the Father. Now, wait a minute. I thought Jesus was the anointed one. I thought Jesus had unlimited power to cast out devils and to heal every manner of sickness and disease. Well, why didn't Jesus just say, well, you know, I know. It's hard to get good help nowadays. 
Uh, but And so I understand how you might have had a problem. But I'm here now. And I'm the anointed one. He didn't pull out Isaiah's scrolls and say, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. So you're in luck. Notice he didn't say that. He has to deal with the one necessary ingredient, and that is the lack of the Father's faith. Jesus doesn't go into a discourse to tell him how anointed he is. He doesn't tell him, boy, you should have seen me a few minutes ago. I was transfigured on the mountain. That's why we were late. Man, that was something. I bet if you'd seen that, you wouldn't have had a problem. Didn't say anything about his power. Didn't say anything about his ability. Didn't say anything about the power of the Holy Ghost or the power of the Spirit of God that was upon him or his anointing or anything else. He talked to the man about the one necessary ingredient to make this work, and that was his lack of faith. Oh, faithless generation. That means no faith, doesn't it? Oh, faithless generation, how long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. And they brought him unto him, and when he saw him, when the boy saw him, Straightway the spirit tore him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming. And Jesus asked his father, how long is it ago since this came unto him? Now, I don't know why that was a necessary thing for Jesus to ask, but I, I don't know if it's curiosity or whatever. But he wants to know how, far, how deeply entrenched is this thing? How long has this been here? Not that it's going to make a difference on whether or not Jesus can do anything. The only thing that makes a difference is the faith of the father or the lack thereof. Maybe Jesus is asking the father, how long have you been watching this take place? Seeing this happen yet day after day and year after year, that might affect what you believe, wouldn't it? So he says, how long is it ago since this came unto him? And the father said, of a child. And oftentimes it has cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Now, folks, I want to back up a little bit and, and walk you through this from the father's perspective, in my opinion. You judge this for yourself. If the father didn't think there was a chance of something happening, he never would have planned to come to Jesus to begin with. The only thing that would cause him to believe there might be help for him or hope for his son is the things that he's heard of Jesus doing for others. Otherwise, what what purpose would there be for him to come to Jesus? He wouldn't take him to the butcher, the town butcher, because the town butcher is not healing and casting out devils. Jesus is. He must have heard something about it. And that, in my opinion, is the source of his action to bring Jesus, bring his son to Jesus to begin with. I doubt very seriously if it was a real boost to his faith to come to the disciples and find out Jesus wasn't there. That was probably a letdown. Would have been for me. But I'm sure the disciples spoke up and said, well, no, no, look, no problem. Jesus gave us authority to cast out devils so we can take care of this. And then they try not knowing that the father's unbelief is hindering them and fail. And that probably added to the unbelief of the father, too. I can sympathize greatly with the father. I can even sympathize with the disciples on this case. But it still doesn't change the necessary fact that unless he can get the father, unless Jesus can get the father into faith, he's not going to be able to do anything for him to help the son, to deliver the son, no matter how anointed he is. Right? So the father says, it's been like this since he was a child. A lot of times it throws him into the water to drown him. A lot of times it throws him into the fire to to kill him that way. He says... 
But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. That shows his lack of faith right there. He doesn't know if Jesus can do anything. He may have thought Jesus could do something when he first came, but now he's at the place where I don't know if you can help us at all. But if you can, please do. And Jesus puts his arm around his shoulders and says, I understand how you feel about this. I have great compassion on you, and my great compassion causes me to sympathize with your problem. See, that's what people want. You've got a lot of people. I've come upon a lot of people that I can't get them healed because they want sympathy for their sickness. Jesus did not sympathize with this father. He had compassion on him. But compassion and sympathy are two different things. I see a lot of people who Christian brothers and sisters help destroy by sympathizing with their sickness. Had somebody come up to me this morning after the service and they said, Pastor Mike, I need you to pray. They turned in a prayer request, but I didn't understand the prayer request. And so I didn't say anything in church about it. Well, it was, she was the one that turned in the prayer request. And so she came up afterwards and apparently this, uh, this father, uh, some flu virus or something like that had gone into his house and, and he had two sons or had a, a son and a daughter, uh, grown sons, grown son and grown daughter. Uh, the flu had turned into pneumonia. She had died. The son was in a coma. The father had the, had the thing too. And so it just kind of swept through the house and, you know, taking everybody out. And so she was just all distraught about this. She said, I, I want you to pray. And I said, well, what are we praying for? She said, I want you to pray that the son will be healed. He was at the point of death. So she said, I want you to pray that the son will be healed. And she tuned up and started to cry. And I said, well, what are you crying for? She said, because it's such a terrible situation. And I said, well, but if the Bible is the answer, if praying for healing is the answer, why are you crying? And she started coming up for the reasons for why she's crying. Well, I feel sorry for the father. I said, I thought we were praying for the son. She kept on and on and on. And finally, I got her to the place where I, I caused her to realize, look, we can't pray in agreement if I'm praying in faith and you're crying. There's no agreement between faith and crying. Well, I just feel so bad for him. I said, this has nothing to do with how you feel. This has to do with whether or not the word of God is true and we can agree on it. It took me 10 minutes to get this woman to stop crying so that we could pray in agreement. Prayed. I said, is it done? She started to cry. She said, I sure hope so. I said, it's not. Let's start over. Spent another 10 minutes. Finally got her into the place of faith. And I could see it in her eyes. She wanted to cry. She wanted to cry. I said, don't you do it. Don't you dare shed a tear. There's nothing to cry about if the word of God is true. And the Bible says if two of us agree as touching anything we ask here on the earth, it shall be done. You crying undoes this thing and will cause this man to die. I said, you don't want to kill this man, do you? She said, no. And I said, then don't cry. She stiffened up a little bit. Then I thought she was going to cry because she thought I was being mean to her. I've seen a lot of people destroyed through sympathy, folks. Don't sympathize with people being sick. You can have compassion without being sympathetic. Sympathy doesn't help anybody. Compassion does. I know it's a fine line, and we have to be careful in how we present ourselves, and I've offended a lot of people on this thing, but sympathy will kill somebody. The devil uses sympathy to enforce sickness. So instead of Jesus putting his arm around him and telling him how he understands his feelings, notice Jesus says to him, 
The father said, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus turns it around back on him on verse 23 and says, if thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believes. In other words, he's saying, it's not a matter of what I can do. Now, notice where Jesus is coming from. Jesus knows he can do anything. He knows he has unlimited power over sickness and disease and easy, simple thing for him to cast out devils. He's got authority over all the power of the devil. No sweat for him to be able to do it. But he doesn't try to convince the father of that. He tries to convince the father that his place is one change, one adjustment, one step that has to be taken, and that is a step from unbelief into faith. Now, you know how most people think that's a big, giant step? It's not. I think this is the reason for this story being included in the Scripture, to show you how easy it is to go from unbelief to faith. Straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. Now, you know what put this father over when he said, Lord, I believe. He could have skipped the tears. He could have skipped the help my unbelief. Neither one of those helped him, but we understand where he's coming from. We can empathize with him. We can have compassion for him. But the thing that put him over was when he said, Lord, I believe. Now, can I ask you a question? What changed with this guy? He still saw the nine disciples not able to help his son. He still saw his son being torn, thrown down in front of Jesus and wallowed, foaming, gnashing his teeth and all that other kind of stuff. He saw this thing act up. He hasn't seen anything new, anything different. He simply made a choice. Lord, I believe. That's what faith is, folks. It's a choice to believe. He goes from Jesus, if you can do anything to help us have compassion on me and and do something to Lord, I believe. Jesus didn't stop and say, look, watch this, go heal somebody else and come back and say, now, what do you think? The one choice, one step, one adjustment that the father made is he said, Lord, I believe. Without any evidence to contradict what's kept him in unbelief before, he simply chooses to change his position from unbelief to faith. Jesus gets his point across. He's already said, you're a faithless generation. You don't have any faith. That's the problem. Jesus then compounds it in verse 23 by saying, it's not a matter of what I can do. It's a matter of what you can believe. The father has no doubt whatsoever that the change has to come from him. Not from God. Now, how different is that from where most people's position is on healing today? Most people are waiting for God to do something. Most people are waiting for things to change on God's end. Jesus made it perfectly clear to the Father. The change doesn't come from me. It's going to have to come from you. And he makes the change. Simple change. Lord, I believe. Help thy mind believe. When Jesus saw the people come running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him, and he enter enter no more into him. And the spirit cried and ran him sore and came out of him, and he was as one dead, insomuch that many said, The boy is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Now, what did Jesus do differently than he would have done otherwise? Nothing. He commanded the evil spirit to come out. If he had done, if Jesus had been as ignorant of how these things worked as the disciples, 
I'm sure the disciples said something very similar. They tried to cast the devil out, but they couldn't. Jesus understood that the reason that it doesn't work and the only reason that it never works, or that's not a good way to say it, the only thing that will cause it to not work ever is unbelief. It's the only thing. The name of Jesus always has power. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yesterday, he was the anointed one. Today, he's the anointed one. Forever, he is the anointed one. We've already seen that the anointing of the Holy Ghost upon him gave him the ability to cast out devils and to heal every manner of sickness and disease among the people. God hasn't changed. Sickness hasn't changed. The power of God on Jesus has only increased. Jesus said after he was raised from the dead, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. He didn't have all power then. He just had the power that God gave him as a man operating under the anointing of God. Now he's got all power because he earned it. He has the power that he had here on the earth, plus the power that he stripped from the devil, plus the power that God gave him when he gave him a name that's above every name. That's why Jesus said to his disciples, all power is given to me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore. In other words, I'll take care of it in heaven. You take care of it in earth. Unbelief is the only thing that can ever stop it from working, folks. But look how easy it is to get over in faith. Lord, I believe. Lord, I believe. Lord, I believe. I'm going to read to you from James chapter 5. We're closing up now. And I've got in my heart to minister to the sick tonight. What, are, what does this mean to us? James chapter 5 gives us specific instruction in ministering healing to the sick in the church. Verse 14, is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. Elders is the, would correspond to what we know of today as ministry staff in a church. Pastors, assistant pastors, and so forth. Let him call for, is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them, the elders, pray over him. The word pray here is a general word for prayer. It means literally to worship. Let them pray or worship over them, the sick, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. You know why some people fail to receive their healing? Smith Wigglesworth had a sermon on this, one of the best things I ever read. He said this. He said, when I come before those that are sick, he said, I never see their sickness. He said, I see Jesus. He said, it's my job to get them to see Jesus instead of looking at their condition. He said, when I get people to see Jesus instead of see how bad things are for themselves or how long they've had this thing or that thing or whatever it is, if I can get them to see Jesus, he said, I always get them healed. He said, you can't see Jesus without being in faith. I like that. Because so often what happens is in healing lines or healing services, people come up and they come up in desperation. They're like the father in Mark chapter 9. They come and they, they don't say it, but it's kind of like, oh, God, if you can do anything, please let it happen today. And they're not looking at the anointed one. Is any sick among you? Let them call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. Now, this word prayer is a different word. This word prayer means vow. And the vow or the declaration of faith shall save the sick. The word save is the word heal. The declaration of faith, the vow of faith, shall heal the sick. 
Notice it doesn't say it might work. It says the declaration of faith. If we follow the, the explicit instructions, this will work every time. Now, folks, if unbelief stopped Jesus' power from working, unbelief will stop the power of God from working, the healing power of God from working today, too. And I think a lot of times what happens is we lay hands on people too quickly and we don't know whether or not they're in faith. We just try to help them. They're grabbing at straws and we just lay hands too quickly on folks. And so they go away without results and then they become more entrenched in their unbelief like the father did in Mark chapter 9. But if we meet the qualifications of faith and the prayer of faith, the vow, the declaration of faith shall heal the sick. Sounds like a guarantee. Yeah, well, what happens then, Pastor Mike? Notice it says, and the Lord shall raise him up. And the Lord shall raise him up. And the Lord shall raise him up. Being raised up is not even your responsibility. It's God's. And the Lord shall raise him up. Now it goes on to say, because there are some people that are always going to let the devil talk them into thinking the reason you've got this situation is because of some sin in your life. Notice it says that the prayer or declaration of our faith shall save or heal the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. And if everybody say if and if he has committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. And if that means not everybody that's sick is sick because they did something wrong. As a matter of fact, that's usually not the case. But sometimes that might be the case. Well, if that is the case, what do we do, Pastor Mike? Do we have to do something else, something new, something extreme? No, it's the same vow of faith that heals the sick that causes them to be forgiven of whatever they did. You don't even have to add that to your prayer. And if he's committed sins, they shall be forgiven. Where is the room for error in this? It's almost like Jesus really was the anointed one, huh? It's almost like the power of God was made available for the church and God expects it to work every time just like he expected it to work every time in Jesus. Who knew? Folks, this works every time. Who in here needs hands laid on you to receive your healing? Would you step out from where you are and come down to the front, please? We're going to pray, lay hands on you and anoint you with oil. Just line up here. Put your toes on the edge of that little carpet there. Good, good. Hallelujah. The rest of you in the congregation, would you stand with us, please? We want to get you participating in this and not just spectating. Hallelujah. Now, the first thing I'm going to get you to do is we're going to take a moment and we're just going to focus on Jesus. He's the anointed one. Amen. Notice it didn't say anything in John, James chapter 5 about a special anointing for the elders, special call on them or anything like that, because Jesus is the anointed one. That's what counts. Jesus is the anointed one. He was when he was here on the earth. He is today and he ever will be, forever will be. So let's get our eyes on Jesus, because whatever your situation is, whatever your condition is, it's no match for the anointed one. Remember what he said. Just close your eyes. And lift your hearts toward heaven. Reach out with your heart, your spirit, toward heaven. And realize what Jesus said about the power of God that was upon him. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus. Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. 
the good news to you, no matter how the law of sin and death has broken you in body or created an issue or problem for you, the good news is Jesus broke that power of sin and death. He's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal those that have been crushed by sickness, among others. To preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty them that are bruised. Is that you? You've been bruised by the work of the devil in your life? To set at liberty them that are bruised. And to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Lord, we magnify you. We exalt you as the Christ. The anointed one, the son of the living God. We thank you, Lord, that there is no problem, no sickness, no disease, no condition. That's greater than the power. The healing power of God to set people free. In Jesus name, father. We act in obedience to your word. We anoint these with all. In the name of the Lord. And because Jesus broke the power of sin and death. Through his sacrifice and through his resurrection. We thank you. That this prayer of faith that we pray now. Shall heal every one of these. And that you Lord shall raise them up. In Jesus name. May I take your hat off, sir? Father, in obedience to your word, we anoint our brother with oil. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the anointed one. And we declare that through Jesus' sacrifice and his resurrection, the power of sickness is broken over his body. Thank you, Lord, that he's healed now in Jesus' name and that you're raising him up. In Jesus' name. Father, we anoint our brother with oil in the name of the Lord. And we declare that he's free from sickness and disease because of the work of Jesus. Thank you, Father, for raising him up now. For correcting whatever the issue is, whatever the problem is. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, we lay hands on our sister and anoint her with oil in the name of the Lord. I thank you, Father, that through the work of Jesus, she's free from the law of sin and death. The power of sickness is broken over her body. Thank you, Lord, that she's you are now raising her up. In Jesus precious name. Amen. Father, we lay hands on our brother and anoint him with all in the name of the Lord in obedience to your word. We thank you, Father. That through the sacrifice of Jesus. Sickness is broken over his body and his life. In Jesus' precious name. Thank you, Lord, for raising him up. Lord, we lay hands on our brother and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. We command him to be healed because of the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for raising him up now in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Father, we lay hands on our sister and anoint her with oil in the name of the Lord. We thank you, Father, that she's healed from the top of her head to the soles of her feet. And that you are now raising her up. By the power of God. Amen. 
Father, we lay hands on our sister and anoint her with oil in the name of the Lord. We declare that she's healed by the stripes of Jesus and that you are now raising her up. Thank you, Lord, for doing a supernatural work. Oh, thank you, Jesus, that you're the anointed one. We lay hands on our brother in the name of Jesus. We command him to be healed now in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord, for raising him up. Lord, we lay hands on our sister and anoint her with oil in the name of the Lord. In obedience to your word, Father, we break the power of sickness and disease over our life. The bondage that sin and death has brought into her body. We thank you, Lord, for raising her up now supernaturally, miraculously. Restoration, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord, we lay hands on our sister and anoint her with oil in the name of the Lord. In obedience to your word, Father, we thank you that the vow, the declaration of faith in the word of God that says Jesus took her infirmities and bore her sicknesses and with his stripes she is healed. We thank you now, Lord, for raising her up. Thank you that she's healed from the top of her head to the soles of her feet. Lord, we lay hands on this sister in the name of Jesus. We command her to be healed because of the work, the finished work of Jesus, our Lord, the anointed one. Thank you, Lord, for healing her now and for raising her up in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord, we lay hands on our brother in the name of Jesus. We anoint him with all in obedience to the word. We thank you, Father, that our declaration of faith in the word of God, faith in that which Jesus has accomplished, heals him from the top of his head to the soles of his feet. We thank you, Lord, for raising him up now in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Lord, we lay hands on our sister and anoint her with oil in the name of the Lord. We declare by faith that she's healed by the stripes of Jesus. We thank you now, Lord, for raising her up. Thank you, Lord, for doing a miraculous work in her. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord, we lay hands on this sister in the name of Jesus. And we anoint her with all in obedience to your word. We declare that she's healed by the stripes of Jesus. And that you now, Lord, are raising her up. In Jesus' precious name. Hallelujah. Lord, we lay hands on this sister and anoint her with all in the name of the Lord. We declare that she's healed by the stripes of Jesus and that you're now raising her up supernaturally in Jesus' name. Lord, we lay hands on our brother in the name of Jesus and we anoint him with all in obedience to your word. We declare that he's healed by the stripes of Jesus. We thank you, Father, that there's nothing that's too hard for you. We thank you that Jesus, the power that he has delegated to the church, is sufficient to heal our brother, which we command now. Thank you, Lord, for raising him up. In Jesus' name. Lord, we lay hands on our sister and anoint her with oil in the name of the Lord. We declare that she's healed by the stripes of Jesus. And that you're raising her up now. In Jesus' precious name. 
Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Father, we lay hands on our brother and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord Jesus. We declare that he was healed by the stripes of Jesus and that you are now raising him up. Thank you, Father, for doing a miraculous work in him. In Jesus' precious name. Hallelujah. Lord, we lay hands on our sister and we anoint her with oil in the name of the Lord. We thank you, Father, that there's nothing that's too hard for you and that Jesus paid the price for this when he bore her infirmities and carried her diseases. Therefore, Father, we thank you that she's healed now from the top of her head to the soles of her feet, completely restored in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for raising her up supernaturally from this moment forward. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Let's all lift our hands and thank God because it's done. Not because we feel like it, but because His Word says so. We obeyed His Word. Father, we thank You that as we've obeyed Your Word, each and every one of these are healed now by faith. We thank You that the prayer of faith, the declaration that they are healed by the stripes of Jesus, brings the healing power of God to bear in their situations and upon their bodies. Lord, we thank you for raising them up. Supernaturally, miraculously, each and every one. In Jesus' precious name. Oh, Father, thank you. It's so good to be healed. It's so good to be healed. Thank you for your great compassion to minister healing to each and every one of these and to restore them to divine health. In Jesus' precious name. In Jesus' precious name. Is it done? Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, God bless you, folks. Go as the Lord raises you up. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Well, as we go, let's thank him one more time. Oh, Father, you're so good. You're so good to provide a foolproof way, a guarantee for healing to work in your church. Thank you, Lord, that just as your compassion moved upon you to raise up laborers to preach, to teach, and to heal in Jesus' day, we thank you for laborers that will go forth in this harvest, even greater harvest, to preach, to teach, and to heal. In Jesus' precious name, amen, amen. Say it with me. Jesus is the anointed one yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.